Welcome to Carrying Wayward, a supernatural podcast for fans who aren't ready to let go and newcomers to the series who are ready to jump in. I'm Drew Shulman. And I'm Marie Gourou. In this episode, we're diving into Supernatural Season 2, Episode 15, Tall Tales. Let's get this show on the road. Hi, everyone. Due to the nature of this episode, we will be discussing sexual assault. If that's not something you're in the headspace to listen to, you can feel free to skip this episode for now or entirely. That is up to you. Take care of yourself. That's what matters. And thank you for listening. Okay, Drew. So this week, we did something a little different. We had a watch party with our listeners. We certainly did, and I'm really glad we didn't record it because I don't want to imagine what my face looked like when I was having some of the moments of shock this episode presented to us. Honestly, it was pretty priceless. Like, it was really, I felt super privileged to be able to, like, (laughs) see you discovering this episode and to see your actual reaction to Croc Loki. (laughs) I still can't believe you got me with that bullshit. It's because it it was so out there that it was not even a spoiler. You know what I mean? Like, you could never have thought that this was potentially a spoiler. Totally got me on that one. (laughs) Your face when you realized that there was an alligator, though, it was so priceless. I loved it. You're like, what? (laughs) All right. Would you like to give us a short recap so that we can, you know, see what you retained of this episode? (laughs) Count me down. Three, two, one, go. The boys end up calling upon Bobby to come listen to them regale uh, with a tale of a bizarre case they're dealing with. It starts with a teacher falling out of a window and dying, which they think might be due to a ghost. They're looking around town for urban legends and stories, only to then find one of the people they spoke to about urban legends and stories was abducted by aliens and made to slow dance with one of them. Suddenly, at this point, we realize shit's gone sideways we keep having the brothers tell their side of the story and seeing little differences here and there and they're getting mad at each other and then there's a third case where a dude gets like devoured by a gator in the sewer and then finally bobby has the realization you dolts it's a trickster he's been playing pranks on both you and screwing with you and these are all like dicks getting their comeuppance which is what tricksters do so they have a face off with the trickster and they play a trick on him to get him into a position to surprise him And then the surprise is secretly on the brothers when they realize the thing, well, they don't realize, but we realize the thing they killed was just an illusion. Well, with 21 seconds left, I'm pretty happy with that recap. I don't think I missed anything major, did I? No, you really didn't. Honestly, like that was a really interesting uh, recap. Definitely liked it. If we can skip into the long game really quickly, if we're starting like a little bit near the top of the episode, we have the first time that we see Sam and Dean argue. And and at that moment, like the viewer has no context of what's happening, right? But we know that Sam is upset about not having his computer. We know that Dean is upset about his car. We're not too sure what's going on, but like he's eating some sort of like barbecue sauce lathered chicken, I want to say. Like I'm never too sure what it is that he's eating, 
When you first watched it, like, what did you think was happening? At this point, I was still very just like waiting for the drop. Like, they seem to be upset with each other. And my logic being like, why they are mad will come to fruition. And later we learn it's the, the pranks. And ultimately, they take it out on each other a little bit in their storytelling to Bobby, which I think is, again, a very major player in the way the story is told. But to me, it just seemed like right off the bat, like we're starting off with the brothers in a bad mood. They're at odds with each other. And Bobby comes in very much an apparent role, which is very much what they need in this moment. So yeah, so there's basically like this whole story is told from two different points of view, right? Like you've got Sam's point of view and Dean's point of view. And it's interesting because like what actually happens doesn't quite change, but the perspective certainly does, right? It's sort of like the two of them are able to use this storytelling time almost like a bit of a therapy session to bring up things about the other one that either bother them or have issue with. Especially because they're siblings and like who can annoy you more than your sibling? To jump forward ever so slightly, the fight they have, like just when he tries <laughs> to take his money back from Dean, and like they go for like the, he goes for like the two or three fake outs, then the like brotherly wrestling. Like I am the eldest of three brothers. And while we never really had that much to fight about, there were definitely wrestling matches like that. Oh my God. My sister and I used to throw hairbrushes at each other. <laughs> Think of this episode does anything. Like if we can take away a message even early on here, like not so much the moral of the story or the theme, but just an important lesson or just a valuable lesson. The relationship you can have with siblings, not to say everyone's siblings are going to be able to do this or everyone's friends are like this, but when you're able to have a relationship with a sibling where it's both friend and brother or sister or sibling, is just a very powerful relationship. Like there's some level of like, it's hard to put words to it because I feel like the show also does a really good job of like explaining why this isn't always the case. But I feel like for a lot of people, when you can have a, a friend in your sibling the same way you would have a friend, it just adds an extra layer to that relationship that just makes it more powerful. Of course, because they are their brothers and they spend so much time together, a little bit like Sam says at some point, right? So let's kind of go through some of those moments where we really see like a divergence in the way that they, they saw and the way that they're interpreting and retelling actual factual events. So the first that I'm thinking of is where, so Sam is the narrator there. And Dean goes like, whoa, that's not what happened. And then proceeds to give like such a different version of, of what happened. And this is where like the, there's that, that girl, there's Starla, right? Who's trying to keep her liquor down. And then in Dean's version, she's a grad student studying folklore and anthropology, you know, like, and this is also, I, I'm sorry, but I have to mention that this scene gives us Jared saying, we've had enough of your blah, 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 blah. Blah, 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 blah. <laughs> so I feel like this starts it off. This is Sam being fairly honest. Like at no point in his telling, especially of Dean and this Starla character, did it come across as unlikely. Like I can see Dean with this, you know, pretty little thing in a bar who can barely hold her liquor and him being like, let's get to chatting because this could be fun because that is at least with women, kind of his M.O., because as we've discussed in the past, it's what we've seen of him. Whereas then his version of it, like, I legitimately don't believe. Like, I feel like if Dean actually ran into the very attractive and very smart anthropology student in a bar, he would make an excuse to walk away and go find a different person to talk to. I don't think that Dean's version of the facts was 
well interpreted, <laughs> if I can put it that way. But I feel like this is the turning point where now moving forward, Sam starts to exaggerate a bit because he's taking not so much revenge, but just playing the same game. Oh, that's so interesting. I love that. But yes, that's very true because at first it sort of feels like it feels a little, looking back, it does feel a little exaggerated, but not that much. And then from there on with the caramels and everything, yes, it absolutely does sound exaggerated. Thank you for that observation. That was pretty amazing. So there you go. The next scene is them in the uh, the dean's office and there's the candies. Like, I 1,000% assume Dean probably ate one or two or even pocketed a few for the road. I don't imagine he actually stood there with, like, squirrel cheeks going, Uh-huh, this is Sam now kind of turning the table going, I can play this game too, brother. I love that, Drew. Honestly, that's amazing. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. I've been practicing the imitation all day. <sighs> And then there's Dean like upping the ante again, because I feel like that's what's actually happening. I hadn't thought about it that way before, but now like that's all I can see. So he's like upping the ante again, saying that Sam like was hugging the other frat boy and that, you know, he, he justifies it by saying, oh, you're always saying pansy stuff like that. He, it feels like Dean is running out of things to mock Sam for. So rather than taking something that he can't stand in Sam, it feels almost like something that he's jealous of. And I mean, again, you, you he plays it up the whole like, oh, you were so lovey-dovey with the stranger. And reality is, I mean, Sam can be the more emotionally connected to person. He has a better time speaking to people and being honest and, you know, showing emotions. And Dean, as we've discussed in a lot of the past scenes, heck, even just what we brought up before uh, in um, eating the hot dogs at the funeral, like, you know, kind of an insensitive move to be stuffing your face at a funeral. And that's that's very true, too. And we'll be talking a little bit about, like, Dean's perception of Sam and how that reflects on him a little bit later in this episode. So let's let's keep that in mind, because I think this is super important. OK, so something that I really want to talk about is the pranks that the trickster is actually playing on them. So, like, the boys are kind of like pranking each other, sort of, with the stories that they're retelling. But the trickster is actually like full-on pranking them too, right? So he's the one who like either took or made the computer disappear, Sam's computer. He also emptied the air out of Dean's uh, tires. And that sort of just like adds fuel to an existing fire because I feel like the boys had been fighting a lot in this season or at the very least, like having such different ideas of like what they should do, what the right thing to do is, that it clearly didn't even take that much for them to start doubting each other. It's like that quiet rage of like, they're just, they're looking for an outlet for it and they don't have one. So this is giving them the outlet to be mad at each other because they, they feel like they need to be. Which also... <laughs> Leads me to a realization I just had. I kind of had like a question and then answered it myself. So was it the trickster who froze Sam's computer on the busty Asian beauties? That's a really good question. When I rewatched it a couple of days ago, I couldn't tell. So I think I have the answer. It was not the trickster. I don't think so. I agree with you. Because the tricksters, the, because I think of it as a balance game. The trickster plays one prank on each of them. But specifically after they have a fight where they both declare the one thing they don't want the other one doing. Sam is very clear. 
stay out of my stuff. And then he makes the comment about the car and Dean goes, you stay away from that car. And that's the trickster's cue to go, I know what to do to these two idiots. I almost want to tackle it now ever so lightly. I know I am. we are very lucky to have an audience who very much agrees with our our views on Dean and his bisexuality and how we've discussed it. I feel like this also could play into that so well of, I air quote, accidentally leaving a page open to help further the narrative of I'm a manly man who likes manly things. Oh, Dean, are we ready to talk a little bit about Bobby? Yes, yes, yes. Bobby, yes. (laughs) Bobby! I'm so happy. Like, I remember the first time that I watched this episode and I saw Bobby, I was like, oh my God, that's so exciting because we've seen him in the last episode. And to see him again so soon, I think Dean or Sam even make the comment, like, it's nice to see you again so soon. Like, that's when I kind of knew that Bobby was going to be a more important character. So Bobby shows up, he listens to the boys, and then he literally helps them solve the problem. And I feel like that is the most parenting that we have seen these boys have in the two seasons combined. Not even parenting in like a subtle like, oh, he's playing the role. Like, literally, the way he yells at them to stop fighting, the way he shushes them, like... Yes! It, it is so parental, and I know we touched on it briefly at the beginning of this season, but this really is just, like, just splendid, like, it, it, I could feel them feeling like children again. And what I love about this is that he actually treats them like siblings. He treats them like equals, right? Like he's not giving extra work, whether it's like emotional or otherwise to Dean. Like he truly treats them like they are equals. Like he shushes Sam. Like Sam's probably not used to getting shushed. I really love that about that moment where you really see them being parented. You see them like allowed to sort of just step back, like sit back and let somebody else drive. And it was just really nice. Like, I really liked that. Such a cherry on top of this already really good episode. I feel like we went through all of story time and didn't talk about the trickster or any of his pranks at all, but they really are ancillary to the whole story, aren't they? They're they're cool, they're fun, they're, they're silly. He's a very interesting character. And given the fact that he gets away at the end, I am very excited for him to return because that's usually a pretty good sign that we're not done with him. And I think that that's probably the reason why he's going to come back because he's able to precipitate those conversations and to like bring, he's a wonderful plot device basically to show like the depth of the relationship of the boys. And in this case, their relationship with Bobby. And when we get to the critical time, you're going to see how true that really is. Yes, exactly. Shall we move on to critical time? Let's go. I think I already know who the writer is, given our live show, but would you like to repeat for all of us who our writer and our uh, director were? So the writer is John Sheban, who is our by Dean, Lord and Savior of seasons one and two. He has written Skin, Scarecrow, The Benders, Dead Man's Blood, Everybody Loves a Clown, and Croatoan. And this is actually his penultimate episode for Supernatural. So we have one more episode with him, and then after that, he won't be working with the show anymore. Which I will say... To our listeners, this was actually brought up. I I forget if it was even on the live show or our live watch or just like between the two of us at some point in the conversation. And you have made it very clear the torch does get passed to somebody equally as good. Yes. But um, 
I, I will be I will be lighting a candle whenever we do watch his final episode. Basically, the next person who is going to give us as much Bidean content as John Sheeban is Ben Edlund. And we've already seen a couple of his episodes, but from now on, he really is going to show us like what he can do with Bidean. So that'll be exciting. I am excited for it. And our director? Our director is Bradford May. This is actually his only Supernatural episode. He's worked on other TV shows, but that is his one and only for Supernatural. For the remainder of Critical Time, because we do have quite a uh, packed Critical Time for this uh, episode, do you want to start maybe with telling us a little bit about the lore here, or do you want to start with our listener requests? As I have made clear before, I'm a huge fan of mythology and the occult and legend and lore. And the trickster god and the trickster character in a lot of religions, and as I learned today doing my research, pretty much every culture has one. Some do overlap, some uh, are a little more modern takes on them than you might expect. A few really obvious ones, and one that I actually referenced earlier, would be Puck from Celtic History, which you might recognize from A Midsummer's Night Dream of uh, Shakespeare fame, where the trickster is literally acting as the narrative device to move the story forward by making all these changes and all these wishes and kind of cross magical spells come to life to cause all of the shenanigans that is the entire play, much like the trickster does in this episode. A few other examples that um, are a little more obvious would be leprechauns in general, given the Irish mythology. Uh, according to a lot of sources, uh, a, an example in English, like actual proper like British English, would be Robin Hood. And I feel like if you just think back to the animated Disney one, when he enters the um, the archery contest dressed as like a goose character, kind of like, it, again, kind of has that feel to it. I feel like I've been tiptoeing around, but I'm going to give the really obvious one that everyone's waiting for me to say. And that is the Polynesian or Maori, uh, who is Maui. Maui was considered a trickster god and given some of the foibles, a lot of the stories of Maui really were just kind of messing around or playing pranks on the gods and you know, giving humans all these gifts kind of as like a side effect. The one you actually wanted me to say, which is Loki of Norse mythology. Loki, I think, is probably the most well-known for many reasons. And I mean, we to go even into some of the stories of uh, Loki that's kind of interesting is a lot of trickster gods were considered to be uh, gender fluid or of uh, no particular gender per se. And uh, both Loki in the Marvel Cinematic Universe and in traditional lore is actually gender fluid. Well, I think it goes with the whole, you know, shape-shifting, the idea that they're either shapeshifters or masters of disguise, right? So I, I, I like that. I like that idea. And I like, I like again, I, I think it's nice to remind people that Loki in, in traditional mythology is gender fluid. And again, in most cultures... A lot of these deities, a lot of these characters through folklore are often considered to be either to appear in different genders, and different stories, or be explicitly gender fluid. It's not just Loki. I have two more I want to bring up. One I bring up because I've never heard of it, but it ties into something I want to get into weirdly. But it's also French, and I'm curious to know if you've ever heard of it. Renard or Renard the Fox. I know when you speak to like French people, usually they'll say like rusé comme un renard, which is basically like very smart and a little sneaky. So there's that idea of like playing tricks on people. So I bring that one up specifically because one, I wanted to see if as someone of French lineage, you would have any history with it. I'd be, I'd have been curious to hear anything. But secondly, it's because a lot of these tend to tie to animals and the three most common animals for the trickster character to take upon is either a fox, a raven or crow, 
or a spider. And I bring up the spider one because I came across one from West African and Caribbean culture called Anasi, who is often depicted as a spider, either male or female. And is generally, and in a lot of these cases, oftentimes the hero of the story. So we've seen cases of like Puck or many leprechaun stories where they are kind of an ancillary character or like a plot device character or kind of like a, uh, an overarching like plot character. But then you think of like Robin Hood or in a lot of these cases, like uh, I've been reading about Maui and Anasi, they're the main character and they're not always seen as a villain either. They are sometimes the hero of the story. I'm gravitating a lot to what you said about ravens. In many indigenous cultures, the trickster is also the messenger and often it's depicted as a raven. If you paid really close attention, and this was brought to our attention by one of our listeners, in when they're when the boys are in the office with the trickster, like the professor's office, the Professor McNeil's students, there's actually some indigenous art that is representing a raven. That was pointed out to us. And then when I did my research and found all the raven stuff, I was like, oh, that is just like such a cool touch. Again, like it's hard to know if this was done specifically on purpose or not, but wow, like what a nice way to kind of like pay homage because they are also like, let's keep in mind that for this particular episode, they're filming at UBC campus, University of British Columbia. Mm -hmm. And the type of indigenous art that's there is really like local art. And it's just kind of a very nice way to pay homage to the lands that they're on and the lands that they're using in order to be able to shoot this this series. Now, I think I would have preferred like a verbal acknowledgement, but I'll take I'll I'll take what I can get in this specific case. Yeah, this feels like way too like specific. Like the fact that like again in my research, um the two creatures that are most connected to the trickster in indigenous cultures and First Nations people were the raven and the coyote. So to have such a specific depiction just seemed like if it's a coincidence that is like mind-blowing i i agree like it's it's hard to think that it would be a coincidence frankly somebody did their homework and they showed a raven and i think that that's really awesome i'm very happy about it and to close this section off if we can talk on the topic of doing their homework there is a very subtle reference here like i had to look it up and there's still a part of me that might be projecting a bit but I'm putting it out there because I want the listeners to look at this and tell me if I'm right or I'm wrong. There is all this talk of animals, and I couldn't get over the fact that in the show, this trickster has this dog who's only there for one scene. It seems like such a weird choice to give a trickster god a dog who is of no relevance. It's kind of like the whole like Chekhov's gun. Like the dog's there, there's probably a reason. Like what a weird choice. And I was hoping in my research I might come across why the dog was there. And I didn't, but I knew the dog looked familiar. Like, I feel like I'd seen a movie with a very similar dog and it hit me just before recording and I had to look it up. I will invite our listeners to Google these two things. If you look up the dog and then look up the dog that belongs to another character in another film who is depicting a trickster god. The character is being basically possessed by Loki, the trickster god in this movie. Jim Carrey's The Mask. Oh, oh my God. <laughs> look up the dog from The Mask and then look up a picture of the dog. Like, 
They're not identical, but it's pretty damn close. And that to me just seems like what a weird and cute little nod. Wow. Again, clearly someone did their homework. Like someone Googled Loki back in 2007 and was like, what's what's a part of pop culture or just culture <laughs> in general? Wow. Set dressing really did a good job there. My like, I goodness. Don't know, I don't know if this is a John choice or if this was just someone on the set who happened to like like that connection and knew someone who had a dog. But like, mwah, again, my chef's kiss to the scene. That wraps up my, my thoughts on Critical Time. I know we had some other things we wanted to touch on, so I will let us move forward. When we did our watch party, we sort of asked our listeners, like, you know, what would you like for us to talk about? And we got a, a few suggestions, which we'll uh, discuss briefly a little bit later. But the one thing that came back a lot was, we want to hear about the problematic stuff. <laughs> so let's go ahead and do that. <laughs> I've made a list and it's by no means exhaustive, but it's got a couple of things that I, I specifically wanted to discuss. So the first thing is the professor and the student in the first scene. Now, this, I guess I would argue that is it's only problematic narratively. And what I mean by that, like, listen, 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 <laughs> like, I'm not saying this is not a problem. In real life, obviously, teachers shouldn't sleep with their students, period. There's no ifs, no buts, no maybes, right? That is a non-negotiable. There's a power dynamic, period. And so the show uses this to give the professor his just desserts, Although, like, I mean, did he deserve to die? I mean, that's a whole other question, but the show actually calls it out, which is good. And of course, like on a side note, I sort of want to mention that even math professors shouldn't sleep with their students, not just ethics professors. <laughs> yeah, but, no, you know, I think that goes without saying, but at the same time, why not say it once in a while? Exactly. I just figure again, like one of the things that we're doing is taking the subtext out of Supernatural. And I think that this is one of those cases where, yes, of course, he shouldn't have slept with her, but not because he's an ethics professor. He shouldn't have slept with her because he's a professor. One thing that I do find problematic, though, is that they changed the actors to play the two different versions of Starla, the girl that Dean is talking to at the bar. Yeah. So someone in the chat commented this and we have to go look it up it like why i don't know why maybe just to gain time because they didn't want to have to redo the makeup on one girl or didn't want to have to like redo the hair redo the wardrobe etc but like i just think that it conveys a really damaging message like it just it's not it's not a great message uh, like to me, it really perpetuates the idea that women are either or. They're either trashy or classy. They're either fun or smart. But the truth is that women can and do contain multitudes. Like, put me in one situation and I will be very trashy. And put me in another one and I will be able to act way differently. I am both fun and smart, although that really depends who you're asking, but whatever, right? Like <laughs> I will defend that to my dying day. You are fun <laughs> and you are sassy and you are smart and you are, you are multitudes in every way. But there you go. But I think that changing the actor in this particular case, like it really bothered me. And I remember watching it the first time and being like, wait a second. And I even went back. I was like, no, 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 they, they didn't do that. That would, that's so awful. But no, they changed the actor entirely. It, it just, it really comes across as icky. 
if I can jump on the next subject. Of course. It's really funny because I think literally like after watching this episode, the next day watching another show with my wife, it came up again. And that is that sexual assault on a man is a joke. You take any scenario that was in this episode, specifically the uh, jock who is being assaulted by these aliens, which is already, uh, again, it's a little harder to pick up on right away because it's being played for laughs that it's aliens and like probing air quotes here is kind of like a, a stereotypical alien like joke. But at the end of the day, we have someone coming forward about a sexual assault, albeit a bit of a crazy supernatural sci-fi one. And it's being played for laughs. You know, it occurred to me like in that moment that like, if this were a woman saying the same thing and being played for laughs, the show would have been canceled. Like even in 2015, I was watching an episode of Veronica Mars the next day in an entire season that is very heavily focused on, you know, women's safety on a campus where there is a rapist on the loose and one guy gets assaulted it's the laugh of the town. While one, this is definitely problematic from a show perspective, I think it's also very problematic in a societal perspective because I think even today in society, you so rarely hear of men coming forward about sexual assault, at least compared to women. And up until recently, a man, like, you know, I can still picture movies and TV shows where a guy comes out like, oh, my... You know, my teacher, like, assault, like, you know, like, flashed me or touched me inappropriately. And all the other guys are like, good for you. Like, this is still a stigma into today's society, unfortunately. And it's one that is leaving. It's one that's being, you know, we're seeing the other side of the road now. But it is still very common for these cases where, you know, men come forward and they're treated like they're just, you know, like playing it up for show or something. Well, I mean, this is what you know, feminists say when they say that toxic masculinity and patriarchal systems hurt everybody, not just women. No. And I mean, it stems from the fact that society still views it as this, or at least back then more so viewed it as a thing to be made fun of more than anything else. Of course, of course it was used. It was always used as a comedic device, right? Yeah. And it should not be. So whether that's this episode or in general, sexual assault is just not for laughs, period. Like, it's very serious. Well, let's move on to busty Asian beauties, because that was also interesting. I mean, basically, like, if I were to ask Siri what is fetishization, like, I would probably get, like, busty Asian beauties as an answer. Because this is, like, textbook fetishization. So just to kind of give, like, a basic definition of it, of fetishization. It means basically when you're seeing a person, whether like that's a person that's from a specific culture, a specific sex, etc., as an object. And that's basically what's happening here. We'll, we'll, like I said, we'll see more of busty Asian beauty. So we'll have the opportunity to talk a bit more about that. But really in this case, like the only notable traits of these characters, these busty Asian beauties, is that they are women, they're Asian, and they're sexually available. I, I mean, I'm gonna I'm gonna reveal a huge secret here. I've looked at porn websites before. <gasps> and like what? even today, a lot of these websites still categorize women under different ethnicities. Like that's still a thing that's happening today. Yes, of course. That's also because porn is marketed specifically to men and again patriarchal systems hurt everybody 
So there we go. And then in the same vein, there's also the scantily clad women that the um, trickster makes just appear out of nowhere. And I mean, again, like, that's really because this show continues to perceive and portray women as plot devices and not really fully formed characters. So I guess I'm just not surprised at this point. No, and I will I will touch on this point a little bit more in my Crossroads deal, as you'll come to understand. But again, it's 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 not played well. I think it could have been played well, and that's what we'll get to. Well, I feel like this is also, I said it during the, the, the watch party, but those women, like when they were fighting with, with Dean specifically, it gave me major like Austin Powers vibes Yeah, where like I was almost <laughs> expecting the bras to have like guns in them sort of thing, <laughs> like shooting like bullets from their bras. Like I was literally expecting that. I was kind of disappointed when it didn't happen because <laughs> then I feel like at least it would have turned the whole like scantily clad women kind of on its ass, you know, like just to say like, yeah, we're, we're making a joke out of this. We're aware that this is ridiculous, but no, like it's, it was not self-aware in that sense. Yeah. Again, I, I don't want to go too much into it because it is my crosswords that we're going to get to, but you'll see, but I'm on a very similar track with that. All right. Perfect. With that, shall we head to uh, our community? Uh, see what they have to say. Uh, this episode. Yes, please. We have elected to skip the voicemail for this week uh, because we, as we've mentioned multiple times today, we did do this as a live watch with a good chunk of our audience, which was very nice. And for those of you who were there again, thank you so much for attending. Yes, it was honestly such a blast. Thank you so much to those who could be there. And for those who couldn't, like we will be holding more of them. So don't worry about it. Exactly. But we did have a lot of really interesting points come up, and we wanted to use this segment of the show to discuss some of those. So do you want me to read the first comment? Please. All right. Do you guys think that because Dean was telling the story to Bobby, a father figure, he was playing things up, like making himself more manly? I feel like manly wasn't the right word, but I feel like a level of competence, a level of professionalism from Dean that we wouldn't normally expect when he was telling the story because he wanted to impress Bobby as a hunter he looks up to. So I think Bobby's filling the roles of a father and kind of a role model in this case, of like a good hunter and a hunter who who can be trusted. So I think he wants Bobby to ultimately look at him at the end of any of these stories and go like, you did the right thing, good job. Yeah, I'm wondering how much like Dean is projecting John onto Bobby in that moment. Like how he's responding to Bobby the way that he thinks John would like to be responded to. And Bobby just doesn't give a shit, right? He's like, I just want to know what happened. Like, I don't care that her name was Starla or like not. I don't care that she was drinking purple nurples or like martinis, you know, like he did not care. That's not what he cares about. Yeah, he just wants the facts, but he's still willing to listen and humor them a little bit. Like, yeah, he stops them once in a while, but he still kind of like lets the stories flow. I'm going to read the second one because I think that you would probably have the best reaction to it because I'm not familiar with the genre. So the whole episode really reads like a comic book. Every interaction and reaction is heightened beyond the norm. I would have to say yes. Again, comic books very often, like I feel like as a non-comic book reader, one of the really obvious things to kind of picture is like when somebody gets hit, the big like exclamation of a word on the screen, like bam or pow, everything is sort of played up to the nth degree. And usually in a comic, it's because you're using still images. You don't have the movement and action to kind of emphasize things as much. And here 
it's done almost in the way they're acting and then the way they speak and in kind of the very like punctuated points of the story. It, it is very comic booky. And even as far as the coloring and design of the trickster's room and kind of his setting, it's very like bizarre colors. There's like a weird checkerboard pattern floor, the really like red flamboyant silk boxers, as you pointed out there, there is a very comic booky color to it. You're absolutely right. And I actually wanted to mention, did you notice that the filter, like the gray filter was almost not there in this episode? Yeah. Surprise. I think the only time the filter came up was when we were getting the like flashbacks to the aliens. And it was kind of like a weird, uh, like black blur around the edges, kind of a dream sequency, which also is very comic booky. Um, but ultimately, yeah, like even though a lot of it, a lot of the, like the alligator attack and the, the ghost girl were very much at night, they were still very vibrant with color. They were very like expressive. Exactly. And that's also, and one thing that I don't think you've mentioned is the freeze frames. Oh my God. Yes. The freeze frames. Right. Like it just <laughs> I feels forgot about again. completely. <laughs> and the worst part is you mentioned them earlier, but like, yeah, I feel like we're seeing the comic book genre through those freeze frames. So that's yeah, these cool. like punctuated moments. Like if you were reading a comic, that would definitely be a panel. Do you want to read the next one? So our next comment was how they see the other when they're pissed at each other. Yeah. So just to give some context, I think this is when we were discussing, like, did you feel that Dean's version of Sam was more accurate or Sam's version of Dean. And like, so there was a, a really interesting discussion about that. And one of the comments that came up is like, basically, I think that's how they see the other when they're pissed at each other. And I think that we briefly touched upon that at the beginning, but like, yeah, they're already mad about different things. Then the trickster, like quote unquote attacks. And then it's just they're getting more and more angry and then they're upping the ante in the way that they're telling the story to Bobby. Like how often have you told someone a story, especially you and I who've worked retail before and you have to give a little bit of detail about this customer and just in the way you describe them, they come out very. Um, they never come out in the best light. <laughs> no, no, they don't. Unfortunately, because, because you're starting off with, this is the villain of my story you paint them as such so that when your listener, your friend, your, 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 your lovely group of people who are listening to you around the, the beer table, they are, they understand, Ooh, this is the person I'm supposed to dislike. <laughs> exactly. That's exactly <laughs> what it is. Oh my goodness. Yep. Basically. And here we see it in the way that Sam and Dean describe each other. Like we said, and it was brought up that Dean kept making Sam act excessively feminine. And, I know I brought it up very briefly, but I think this exemplifies it really well is there's a level of Dean projecting a little bit on Sam, both in a sense of he wishes he could be that way. Like I really go back to the overly emotional air quotes pansy moment with Sam when he hugs the, uh, the person telling a story, calling him so brave and giving him a hug and saying, I'm here for you. You're too precious for this world. <laughs> That, that that image is like burned in my mind. It's so adorable. <laughs> Jared but, did such a good job there. I mean, oh, both really boys, like Jensen too, honestly, like this is like a plus acting from both of them, frankly. True, like this yeah, was they, such a good episode. They both have to play versions of themselves that are not the character they've developed over the last basically two seasons. Exactly. And they're pulling it off so well. I don't know. Oh, 100%. I love it. And I feel like in this scene, the idea essentially of Dean 
exemplifying this in Sam is less of a this annoys me because I think he sees the value in it. Like as someone who has to deal with people, he sees mm -hmm. where Sam benefits in this and he doesn't like he we've seen, you know, when Dean's flying solo and he has to kind of talk to people how he doesn't really do the best job. So it's a bit of projection in that he wishes he could be the way Sam is with people, that he can be more open and emotional, um, emotionally vulnerable. But as we've discussed to excess with Dean, he can't. And he was very much trained and raised to not be emotional, to not let things show. I also feel like there's a level of um, deflection, you know, in play things. We were talking about how Dean, you know, panics and then deflects. And I think that this is also one of those cases where, you know, we're talking about sexual assault on a man and Dean deflects by making Sam look feminine or, you know, quote unquote feminine or emotional, which is traditionally associated with women. So I just I just feel like this is another case of like Dean panicking and then just saying, oh, yeah, but Sam's a pansy like, ugh, Dean, come on, like you're better than this, you know? Yeah, but at the same time, like. You know what? I'm not going to say he's right, but I understand it. it can be tough. And sometimes when you're in a panic, deflecting to somebody else is the easiest way to do it. I mean, I think that anybody who has been closeted, like, understands what that's like. So 100 percent. But, you know, even myself, like when I have done those things, like I've, I, I look back and I'm like, oh, my God, like. That's so embarrassing. Yeah, you know, but, you know like, I mean, to, to be cliche, hindsight is 2020. And in those moments, sometimes you just you just need to find a way out. And unfortunately, this is usually when unhealthy coping skills or, you know, saying the wrong thing happens. Yeah. Saying the wrong thing, potentially hurting others also by yeah. doing that. So I think I think that, like, it's important to show grace to ourselves and understanding. But I think it's also important to recognize the harm that we may have caused. And so that's kind of why I'm, I'm talking like that. But I absolutely agree that, like, I don't blame him for doing that. I just think that, you know, had he been in different circumstances, he may have been able to act a little bit differently in a way that would make him a bit more proud, I think. I'll read the last one. I loved that narrative device. Anytime that they show that it's an interpretation. So they were talking also about the ghost facers. This is a really interesting thing because we've talked about how the trickster was more of a plot device mm -hmm. than like an, an actual villain. Um, you know, the goal is to create chaos here. And we're kind of seeing that here where we're seeing an interpretation of factual events. And I find that absolutely fascinating given like the type of work that I do in, in graduate school right now. No. And I think even just using it here as a device and it's something I am, I, I think from the comment, I'm making the assumption that when we see the ghost faces again, as you've made clear, we might see more of this. And yes. I mean, if we're honest, we've seen it up to this point already. And actually the last time we saw the ghost facers even. Mm -hmm. We did. You we know? absolutely did. And that was so interesting, too. Yeah. Like, but basically, I, I, what's... Yeah. Just any time you have a character not telling their version of a story and maybe not telling the truth because they don't want to get in trouble or because they're, you know, whether they're the, the creature of the week lying to people or they are someone trying to hide a mistake they made, i.e. the uh, kid in the record store who made, uh, made up the whole story of the haunted house from that episode... Mm -hmm. You know, at the end of the day, it, it is a 
it's amazing to see it in more detail like we did in this episode. And I'll be excited to mm-hmm. see other episodes of the Ghost Facers and how they may share their version of a story. Well, I find that this is also particularly interesting because it's not just a character that's being unreliable in their interpretation or in like the facts that they're giving. It's the narrators that are unreliable. Mm-hmm. Right. Sam and Dean are both telling a story in a way that like suits their needs at the moment. Yeah. And so like that is very, very important because we are talking about tricksters. We're talking about messengers. We're talking about ravens. Like one messenger that we haven't talked about is Hermes. True. Greek who god. actually in Greek mythology is considered a trickster god. Of course. Do you know where the word hermeneutics comes from? I'm going to guess Hermes. Yes, absolutely. Because hermeneutics is all about trying to decipher the message of, of the messenger, of the trickster. That's very interesting, especially when you also consider that the thing that Hermes gave to the humans was the power to lie. Oh, lying. Well, I mean, yes. And there you go. And that's why hermeneutics basically tries to go beyond the words, beyond language. And it tries to really understand the experience of the, of the person, of the other person, right? So like we were talking earlier about difference in points of view. Well, in hermeneutics, especially Gadamerian hermeneutics, there's this idea of like a fusion of horizon. So like if you and I are talking about a topic, well, you're going to have a specific point of view. I'm going to have a specific point of view. And then when we truly come to an understanding about each other's points of view, our horizon expands and we're really able to see the situation in a much more, in a much broader way and a a much deeper way as well. And so I think that a lot of the work that we're doing here is exactly that. We're trying to understand and decipher the trickster messenger that is supernatural. I just, I am thoroughly baffled by how much sense that makes and how much I love that as a description of our show and what we're doing. <laughs> I mean, there you go. Like, I'm also finishing up my thesis, so there's, it's very possible that I'm being a little too um, technical in the language that I'm using. But yeah, basically, like, I, I just find, I love this kind of meta where, like, I'm not sure that they know that they're doing this, but it's there. And again, as like a student of hermeneutics, I'm like, oh, my God, this is so cool because I'm just a big nerd. Uh, That's what we do best is being big nerds. And shall these two big nerds head over to the crossroads? Yes, please. Would you like to get us started this week? Actually, sure. I'm going to go with a simple one. Um, I would not have changed the actor for Starla. (laughs) I would have kept the same actor and I would have changed her makeup, her hair and her clothes. You know, like she can act out two different characters. Like I'm sure that she is a very capable actor if she was cast. If I even take it one step further, I think I would have loved maybe a tiny payoff of seeing her later on in the scene that was clearly not storytelling. And maybe in some way insinuating that she was both a party girl and smart. Like even just a throwaway line of like someone like patting her on the back saying like, you got an A plus after all that drinking last night. Let's go drinking again. Well, like that's it. Like give her like right away in one line. Like, oh, you were out drinking so much, but you're still an A plus student. Good for you. The true Starla, the full Starla. You are allowed to be into drinking and partying and be smart. Exactly. There you go. 
there's there's our there's, there's my lesson for the day. <laughs> <laughs> What's your crossroads deal for this uh, episode? So as I heavily alluded to, I want to go back to our two scantily clad um, trickster women uh, that were summoned up and again, further summoned to entice Dean. And I would have liked to, I'm trying to figure out what to take away and I'm sure we can work on that in a bit, but I would have loved to have seen what the trick really was because as we've seen with the trickster, at least in the the first encounter, it was entice them with something we think they want and then give them what they really deserve. And I kind of would have wanted to see what that would have turned into with Dean. And maybe it's headcanon, maybe I'm thinking too much, but I kind of would have liked to have seen them maybe turn into men to kind of be like, this is what you really want. Like you're lying to yourself, you're lying to others. I don't think they ever would have gotten away with it or done that specifically on the show, even if they were embracing the by Dean. But I would have loved to have seen what the trick was. I don't think there is enough sub in that text uh, for Supernatural. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, that, that would have certainly been interesting to kind of to kind of see that. Like, I even kind of wanted to know what the whole deal with the chainsaw guy versus Sam was. Like, I think that was really sort of set up earlier with the it was something he was planning when we saw him flipping through old magazines. Well, so just as a point of information here, it's also because Jared Padalecki played some character in something related to the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. There's like a real life reason why he he was battling a, a chainsaw person. Which, given a trickster god, I almost can even like more that it's like outside of the show's reality, fourth wall breaking almost the trick, which is kind of funny. But, uh, but that was mine. I, as to what to give up, I don't know, it's kind of tough to say. I feel like there really wasn't much. Would you give up the scantily clad ladies? I don't know. I mean, yeah, I could live without them, but then that kind of moots the whole point of wanting to know more about them. <laughs> <laughs> but but I thought that it would it would be more about like the trick, that your, your deal was that you wanted to know more what the trickster would have done to Dean. Oh, yes, but I, I assume... Guess, to I, give I, him I, his just desserts. But that's it. I assume they were part of it, though. Oh, Okay. Like, they weren't just, like, him trying to, like, pull... Like, they were... The trick would have been, had Dean actually crawled into bed with them, blank would have happened or something. But I do think that in this particular case, like, he was not going to give him his just desserts. Like, he says it very clear. He's like, it's a peace offering kind of thing, right? So I'm not sure that he uh-huh. was going to and play I, a trick on I him. I totally believe that. Mm-hmm. The tricks are gone. Okay. Just, you're right. I give up. Let's make peace. Clearly, there's nothing malicious <laughs> happening here. There was, like, a giant Venus flytrap onto that bed ready to eat them or some crap. There, there was something. Something right. probably cartoonish too. Okay. I'll, I'll, I'll take your word on that. You've been listening to Carrying Wayward, a supernatural podcast produced by Rochelle Castellano, hosted by Drew Shulman and myself, Marie Vigourou. This week, we'd like to thank everyone who came to the watch party. It was so much fun. Help us keep the conversation going, though. You can send us a voice recording at carryingwayward at gmail.com, and you can also follow us on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, and YouTube using at carryingwayward. And make sure to leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. We'd really love to grow our community. And until next week, carry on our wayward friends. Let's get on. Let's get on. What the fuck am I saying? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what I was trying to like change things Let's up for Let's get once. on. <laughs> get on, little doggy. Let's get on. Weird episode calls for weird catchphrases.